Despite its name, the Big Bang Theory is not really a theory of a bang at all. It is really only a theory of the aftermath of a bang. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind. Your hosts here in London, Matthew Russell and Jamie Franklin. Oh yeah, baby, bang. Bang. I got told off for the oh yeah, baby. It's it's only a matter of time. Yeah, listener says it's got <laughs> it's got boring now. <laughs> oh god. Yeah. Sorry. I know. Yeah, I know. Oh dear. Well, you do better then. <laughs> I love that when people go, well, let's hear your podcast. <laughs> I don't, but it doesn't bother me anymore, Matt, because I'm mindful. Yeah, I'm me. I'm, hum, Sam Harris has taught me hum. to just, just not care about it. What, what I've done is I've meditated on the pain it caused me. And, yeah. then, and then I've accepted that feeling. I've decided how long I'm going to hold on to that feeling of hurt. And then I've cast it away. How long did you hold on to it, Matt? About uh, 96 hours. <laughs> <laughs> it's far too long. We're going to have to work on that for you. Um, so, Matt, Alan H. Guth. Alan H. Guth. We're going to be talking a little bit about Alan H. Guth. We can't talk about multiverses without him. We absolutely cannot. And, and, and as you desperately wanted to talk about multiverses, we're going to be I talking about multiverses. Deep. And uh, we've got our amazing interview with Matt Taylor. Yes, we have. One of our absolute space heroes. Is it, what, just complete ledge? Well, he is actually a complete legend. Let's celebrate Alan Bean's birthday. He's born today. Happy birthday, Alan. Rest in peace. So, Jamie, you just before we came on air, you sent me a, oh, wow. Yeah, I, I thought we, we couldn't go by without mentioning this because it, I, it just blew my mind. There's a paper out called a spatially resolved AU scale inner disk around DM Tau by Tomoyuki Kudo et al. If that doesn't get your juices flowing, I don't know what will. But but basically what that means is they're witnessing using the Atacama large millimetre, submillimetre array, or ALMA, the birth of a solar system that looks very much like our own. I, I'm almost, and this doesn't happen a lot, Matt, does it? But I'm almost lost for words. Yeah, you're getting a little bit teary over there. I can I'm, see. I'm getting emotional. And this is special, isn't it? It will give, I get, it will give insight to how our own solar system well, was made. Well, that's what I was just about to say. It's like we've got a, a free opportunity to look back in time. Mm. Okay, we need to do a deep dive on that. We both have to read that paper. Can we speak more about it next week, please? Talk more about the formation of our solar system next week, tick. Oh, e- your baby tick. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I'll tell you what was absolutely cool yesterday, Jamie. Go on. Guess whose house I visited? Oh, the Queen's. No, very close. Alan Bond, the King. Oh, the King. How was it? It was absolutely amazing. It was so cool because he's got all these little bits of memorabilia. Oh. If you listen to the first podcast uh, when we interview him, the first thing he mentions is a rocket he built when he was 15 that, Mm. that he wanted to fly that would get 10 miles high. 
Oh, and that, tell and me he's still got it. It's it, absolutely. It's on his mantelpiece. So it, it's it's called Poltergeist One, and it and it was on top of the on top of his cupboard, and it was there. It's like, oh my god, is that the one? And he goes, one. yes, that's the one. Oh my god! And then he talked about another one that accelerated so fast, eight hundred Gs, <laughs> that that it um, left the paint on the launch pad, as in it accelerated so fast the paint came off (laughs) (laughs) what yeah but anyway so the while i was there he kept looking at his phone saying well i'm expecting a press release but it didn't come and it came just after i left and that was isa giving the green light to the saber rocket engine ah yes so they've uh, they've reviewed the preliminary design and uh have basically giving it the green light and this is what mark ford her, the head of ESA's propulsion engineering section said, the positive conclusion of our preliminary design review marks a major milestone in Sabre development. It confirms the test version of this revolutionary new class of engine is ready for implementation. And then I was, I was around the guy who first conceived it and brought it as well. It's his baby, basically. The, yeah. Sab- the Sabre engine, and we'll talk about it more next week when we put the Alan Bond interview in. Um, it, it could, you know, it could absolutely revolutionise both uh, rocket flight and uh, aircraft travel. It really, it really is quite the thing. It's an exciting one for sure. So uh, yesterday we had three crew members arriving safely at the International Space Station aboard the Soyuz MS-12. Exactly right, and they are Nick Haig and uh, Christina Koch of NASA and Alexei Ovchinin of uh, Roscosmos. And, of course, Nick Haig and Ovchinin were the two that had the aborted mission. So uh, I bet Koch was a little bit uh, frightened with her, yeah, with her, good. With her um, slightly jinxed crewmates. Well, good luck to everybody. I hope that this time everything goes swimmingly. Well, it, well, it has done. They've arrived. Yeah. They've arrived and joined uh, Anne McLean, David. Long may it continue. David Saint Jacques and Oleg Konenchko, and of course uh, um, Christina Koch and Anne McLean are going to be going on the first all-female spacewalk later this month. Long overdue. Now, Jamie, the biggest news of the week, and this basically set Twitter afire. Well, I knew something was up when I saw a reply from you, Matt, uh, yeah. to Eric Berger, and it literally just said WTF. <laughs> yeah. And I thought, oh, well, I don't know what's happened, but I mean, Matt is, he's hes very shocked. <laughs> yeah, well, well, yeah, it was one of those, what the hell? It, it, I mean, it kind of seems obvious. And for me, it just looks like an enormous nail in the SLS coffin, if I'm honest. But, so um, before we go before we go into it, hmm. in a sentence, can you say in layman's terms what happened? Jim Bride of Frankenstein, Jim Bridenstine. Oh yeah, yeah. He had to uh, appear at a, a Senate Commerce Committee, um, hmm. and it was all about America's future in space. And um, he basically just blurted out. He was more concerned about meeting schedules, that NASA is like, we should meet schedules, and that's what is important. So if SLS isn't ready, we should just send the Orion capsule on Demo Mission 1 around the moon on another available rocket. 
and it's like yes. everyone's like, what, what? what Say so, so what? what? <laughs> All these missions that that were basically SLS only missions have suddenly you can do them on other rockets. It doesn't matter. I mean, you have to change the entire thing because nothing is as capable as SLS at the moment. So you can't launch everything up at the same time. So you, no, you 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 can't. But that's a that is a historic shift for NASA. Yeah, no, it's huge. It is absolutely huge. And it started earlier in the week, I think, with uh, some kind of there were the the budget. The NASA budget came out this uh, week as well, and. I'm, I don't think there's much need to talk about it because it's going to change massively before it actually uh, gets done. But there were things mm. like cancellations of uh, sort of later stages of the SLS and things like that, which for me, I was looking at it and going, oh, gosh, that, that looks horrible for SLS. But then this yes. is even more horrible because it's basically saying you don't really need SLS. <laughs> no. you, could, you can just do it on multiple rockets and, and uh, just – add a layer of complexity to it. So he basically said that it would require two vehicles. Okay. You would launch something like a Centaur upper stage, fully fueled on one of your rockets, and then you would launch Orion on another heavy lift rocket, and then the two would have to meet in orbit, which is very similar to what John Young and Michael Collins, the great John Young and the great Michael Collins did in yes. Gem Gemini 10 when they docked with an Agena upper stage. And we've talked about those missions before, all those you know special docking missions. And, of course, the Russians have done it as well uh, with their Soyuz to Soyuz uh, missions. So it's not impossible. Uh, and it's something, of course, Orion should be able to dock because it should be able to dock with the Lunar Gateway and all, all the yeah. other kind of things. So... It's it's more about procedures and things like that have to be written. This all does seem like, though, doesn't give much turnaround time. June 2020 mm. for for designing these new procedures and, and everything to make that happen. Yeah, I mean, surely that's the irony is that they're trying to make things quicker. But you've made it more complicated. But obviously SLS is, is struggling massively and it's... And yes. And you know what? This would have this, fair play, in a way, isn't it? Because this would have taken a lot of thought and a lot of guts to say, you know what? Let's 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 try it this way. I mean, that is bold, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I mean, Bridenstein is turning out to be one of the best NASA administrators ever. He's he's absolutely brilliant. Uh, mm. You know, he he. I mean, we even I, we, I said it with. David Baker last week before all this and he's turning out to just be extremely good and extremely competent and he's just he's absolutely out there making these comments and he's not afraid to do them apparently he's got Mike Pence has got his back as well um, and of course he's the person that really ultimate is responsible for it uh, yeah. the, the, the one guy that you should look out for all of this is a guy called Richard Shelby and he's Alabama's senator now all the work for these kind of rockets gets built in Alabama. So this is a hugely important economic thing for Alabama. And uh, But Richard Shelby, he was a massive Constellation fan and kicked up a massive fuss when that got cancelled. Uh, and I guess it's kind of down to him that SLS was even a thing. And it often gets called right. the Senate launch system uh, because basically it was – 
it was basically we can't lose all this expertise we can't lose all this money from the area you've got to give us something so they gave alabama sls uh, after they after they cancelled constellation so um yeah he's 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 always been things very anti elon musk of course because elon musk doesn't have a factory in alabama and you know what elon said about it gone i just don't understand what his beef is <laughs> again great impression that's perfect, wasn't it? <laughs> That's exactly how he talks. Elon Musk was talking about his beef with um, the commercial crew. Uh, he just, yeah. uh, and Elon Musk was saying, well, what's his beef? Because uh, ULA are based in Alabama, so... You yeah. just didn't get it. It's going to be interesting. Richard Shelby's the person that's going to be like utterly not behind this plan at all. But there's been yes. there's been quite a few other comments about this. For example, one of the things that people have been saying is, well, it's going to be a Delta IV heavy because Orion, the Orion capsule's been launched on a Delta IV heavy before. Mm. And uh, you've got, I mean, you can't just put a capsule on top of like a Falcon Heavy because it's just that they haven't built the adapters or or looked at any of it before. So there's no way that could be ready for 2020. So it's got to be on something like an Atlas or a Delta because they're the only way you could turn it around on time. But the Delta IV Heavies, apparently, they take 36 months notice to build so there's no way you could have one of them ready for 2020 and the ones that are being built are being built for uh national reconnaissance missions mm. so that seems unlikely that they'll get bumped along and if they do get bumped along then um ULA will have to massively de- delay their uh, Vulcan rocket so that doesn't seem likely either so it's a really odd one because, yeah, can you actually turn around Vol- uh, these Delta IV heavies on time? What would be really cool, though, is if they could and you have two Delta IV heavies on the launch pads at the same time flying within minutes of each other or hours of each other or days with each other, it would still be really cool. <laughs> that would be very cool. Yeah, yeah so yeah, I'll still be up for that. Yeah, no. So it's going to be, you know, pretty spectacular what that, whatever happens here. Um but there was well, a... it was a shock, but you know what? I'm backing it. That's yeah. it. There, I said it. Re- reading Eric Berger's article, there, there, there's a great comment in the in his in the comment section. I love the comment section actually of Eric's articles because there's loads of really clever people commenting down the bottom. But it, uh, it uh, Eric said it is important to remember that United Launch Alliance is co-owned by Boeing and Lockheed Martin. Boeing is the primary contractor for the SLS rocket. The statement reflects this nuance. So obviously the statement from Jim Bridenstine, he was very careful not to piss everyone off, but it's quite hard. And someone said, that was a really polite way of stating the extremely difficult position ULA was put into by Bridenstine's trial balloon. It's like having your extremely jealous divorced dad's young girlfriend come on to you at a family gathering where you were going to ask him for some money for college. (laughs) (laughs) That is genius. Grey beard engineer, you're a legend for that one. That's very funny. I love that. Big ups. (laughs) <laughs> so yeah that's that was that was the surprise news of the week i kind of had to that's why that's why we were slightly late getting on the well, phone this week feature. because because it was like i'm gonna have to rip up the notes here because that kind of has surprise to go news of, of the week. week so jamie do you know what my space word of the week well i'm hoping it's two words and that it's eternal 
Inflation. Yeah, it was going to be one word, inflation. But as it as as you wanted to do multiverses, I decided yeah. I decided to do eternal inflation. Well, it sounds cool, doesn't it? Yeah, well, it is very cool. So the theory of inflation states that the inflationary epoch of the universe, and we talked about this last week when we were talking about we uh, baryonic acoustic waves. We've gone, we've gone very sciencey recently, Jamie. We, we have. Yeah, we <laughs> So uh, 10 to the minus 36, that's one undecillionth of a second after the Big Bang, to 10 to the minus 3, or that's one decillionth of a second, to 100 nonillionth of a second <laughs> after Well, that's the... three words I've never heard before. Yeah, Carry I know. On. Undecillionth, decillionth, and nonillionth. Which is your favourite, just asking you? I think the undecillionth. Me too, Yeah, definitely. Yeah, being a thousand times bigger than a decillionth. Sounds like a sort of Norwegian black metal band, doesn't yeah. it? Undecillionth, supporting <laughs> <laughs> cradle of filth. With shit. With a sheep's head on stage. Oh, yes. So it's that tiny period. And more happens in that first few decillionths of a second than um, than happens in the rest of the universe as we know it, really. Uh, but basically, the, the, the universe expanded ridiculously fast. Really, it, it was trying to explain the smoothness of space. Mm. It could be that this, instead of just having this inflationary period, this this inflationary period lasts forever, and that's where you have eternal inflation. So our universe kind of is just like a little bubble that comes out of eternal inflation, where a little patch, basically, of space-time finds a stable vacuum energy and then sort of breaks off as a as a as a little baby universe and right. and then suddenly instead of having eternal inflation or inflation it then you just goes out to your normal expansion of a of a of a universe that we see today right mm-hmm. so that is now a little bubble that's come off but uh, I guess one of the things that's really interesting about this, the, this little bubble that's broken off, the, 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 the settings, the little dials of all the fundamental constants of the universe are exactly right for galaxies to form, stars to form, atoms to form, humans to form, uh, robins to form, worms to form, yeah. all those sort of things. So it's, it's, it just, it's like, why is the universe set where all the controls are just right, and then there, you get the anthropic principle that basically is well, the reason why we see a universe that's just right is because we're in that universe, right? Right. So who's to say we are defined right? Well, no, it's just the fact that you know the reason why we observe it is because we're observing it because we're here, we we observe we're here because we are yeah. we are here. Yeah, you see what I mean? But it's that same thing. But but what I take from what you said is is that you know when people say, ah, oh, well. There must be a God because everything's we're designed perfectly, and it's like we're not. We're absolutely not. You're saying that because you think that we are perfect, but we're clearly not perfect, are we? No, 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 no. That it that is related to the anthropic principle. But the anthropic principle, what what's good about this is 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 that it's like yeah, why is the universe so specifically set up like that? And a really easy answer to that is well, maybe. 
you have an infinite set of these bubbles that break off eternal inflation. The inflation just keeps on going, but you occasionally get these little pocket universes, like little bubbles frothing off this eternal inflation that have different universes in. So there's lots and lots of different universes being created. Now that actually, weirdly, if you sort of have Occam's razor, you, you kind of have to reject it because it, it has too many assumptions. But if you yeah. use Kolmogorov's complexity, which is what's the smallest computer program that you could write to represent your current situation, your, your, the uh -huh. thing that you're trying to look at, it's easier to have a multiverse than, than a simple idiosyncratic universe. Do you want to talk about the multiverse? Bloody love to, actually. Alan Guth, who, who we started our, the quote that we started off with, and also there was Alexei Starobinsky and Andrei Lind. They were the first people to really come up with this uh, inflationary theory. And the great thing about it is the, the cosmic microwave background that we talked about, the Planck yeah. and WMAP observations of it, th those satellites that we've launched have pointed very, very strongly that inflationary theory is right. And there was always a problem with inflation is that there was no consistent way to bring an end to the inflationary epoch. So how do you stop it? One of the solutions was proposed uh, in 1982 by Andrew Lind and Andreas Ulbracht called the, great, uh -huh. the Graceful Exit Problem. Ooh, uh, I like it. <laughs> uh, who showed how to end inflation without making empty bubbles and instead end up with a hot expanding universe. New inflation. Uh, and then in 1983, Paul Steinhardt showed that this new inflation does not have to end everywhere. So that's like, whoa, what's happening here? It might only end in a finite patch or hot bubble full of matter and radiation. And then the inflation continues in the most of the universe while producing hot bubble after hot bubble along the way. So uh, Alexander Vilikin showed that when quantum effects are properly included, this is actually generic to all new inflation models. So Whoa. when you solve the problem of a graceful exit, you essentially open up the fact that you've got this eternal inflation with lots and lots of hot bubbles coming out. And then Alan Guth steps in again in his 2007 paper. So this is quite recent stuff. Eternal inflation and its implication, uh, which is a seminal paper and states that under reasonable assumptions, although inflation is generically eternal into the future, it is not eternal into the past. So he actually says, you know, this states that there is at least a beginning of the universe. Right. <laughs> but also a beginning of the multiverse. That's a hard one to think about, though, isn't it? Because you're sort of thinking that's, that's a strange thought that somebody is saying that we could be in eternal bubble universes right now, but it wasn't always like that. There was actually a start to this eternal mm. inflation. Uh, and then all these little bubbles bubbling off are lots and lots of uh, universes. But let's face it, the one thing that you kind of want to talk about is, well, where's the proof for all this absolute yeah. mind-blowing stuff? Now, one of the proofs is, well, one of the proposed proofs proofs is that in the CMB map, the Molveda map that we um, that oh, yeah. what we talked about last week, there is, if you look in the bottom right of the map, 
I was going to say the bottom right corner, but it's quite hard to have a corner of an oval. Um, yeah, that's true. Is a cold patch, which is blue basically, and that cold patch is like there's nothing else like it on on the map. Now, one of the reasons, one of the things that, that this cold patch could be, is caused by a collision with another bubble universe. But but I'm just going to come at this from my pathetically underknowledged stance. Well, you me, you and me both. <laughs> well, Matt, why would it be cold if there was a collision? Surely if there was a collision of two universes, it would be extremely hot, no? Let's face it, do you, do you really know what the physics are of colliding universes? Of course not, but, but surely that would... Would that not simply come down to matter meeting matter? Remember, all of this comes out of the maths uh, when you run these simulations or, or or run the equations that that's what you end up with a kind of cool patch where you have where this collision has happened it's very true i'm basing this on what happens on earth basically yeah yeah and that's not right which which would be really <laughs> yeah whatever is intuitive is out the window at this point <laughs> are you saying matt that basically the human brain can't really fathom it no, I think it can because people are. Fa- oh, you just mean my brain? Uh, no, I just no. I think that there's. I think that there's some <laughs> amazing physicists. Well, my my brain certainly can't, but I think there's amazing physicists out there who are, who are re- You know, Guth being like an absolute legend, who are sort of piecing together the early universe, and it just seems to be absolutely incredible. But the thing about this patch, Jamie, is that really, if you statistically speaking, one in 50 universes would have a patch like this just purely by statistical chance alone. You would expect yeah. that to happen. So we might be this one in a one in 50 uni, one in 50 universes. There's no, you know, it would be like, well, I'll tell you what it's like. It's like pulling out a playing card and saying, this is going to be the ace of spades and pulling it out and it's the ace of spades. Essentially, that's the that's the chances of it happening, and I'm sure that's. I'd be impressed by it. Yeah, you'd be impressed by it, but it's not it's not so amazing that you have to kind of. No. Yeah. Or the second is that there's a massive void in space, uh, a sort of massive bubble where just there was no matter for some reason. Uh, but there's been quite a few pa- papers recently that seem to suggest that there isn't a void in space there, um, and they've done the calculation. So that is being ruled out. So the two sort of competing hypotheses are now multiverse collision or just pulling out an ace from a pack of cards. So really, you still have to go with pulling out the ace from a pack of cards if you're following Occam's Razor. I'm not going to follow Occam's Razor, Matt. I'm a maverick. You spotted another paper, didn't you? This is testing inflation with large-scale structure connecting hopes... With reality, Marcelo Alvarez. Matt, this is going back to December 2014. Mm-hmm. And it goes on to say, the statistics of primordial curvature fluctuations are our window into the period of inflation where these fluctuations were generated. To date, the cosmic microwave background has been the dominant source of information about these perturbations. Large-scale structure is, however from where drastic improvements should originate. Now, Matt, I, I want to give you some quotes here mm-hmm. because, as you know, I bloody love a quote and it kind of makes me understand things more. 
So this is a quote from uh, Matthew Johnson, uh, Perimeter Associate Faculty Member. Yeah, he, he was also one of the co-authors. There, there were so many authors on that paper. There really was, wasn't there? He says, We're trying to find out what the testable predictions of this picture would be, and then going out and looking for them. And specifically, he's been considering rare cases in which our potential bubble universe might collide with another. Uh, and he lays out what this might look like. He says, we simulate the whole universe. We start with a multiverse that has two bubbles in it. We collide the bubbles on a computer to figure out what happens. And then we stick a virtual observer in various places and ask what that observer would see from there. I mean, what do you think of that, Matt? It, yeah, it's absolutely... So he's, instead of trying to look at the uh, the cosmic microwave background, they're looking at sort of large structures in the universe itself and saying that mm. that is possibly um, a better place to look. But it's also a better place to test inflation as well, perhaps, and that, that they've kind of exhausted the CMB and that now just looking out at the greater space and these large structures and how they're formed will in inform us more about what's going to happen. Well, our man Guth, it's hard to build models of inflation that don't lead to a multiverse. It's not impossible, so I think there's still certainly research that needs to be done, but evidence for inflation will be pushing us in the direction of taking the idea of a multiverse seriously. And uh, this is my favourite quote from Adam Mann. Like a bit of throth on the crest of an ocean wave, our observable universe may be nothing more than a slither sitting within the edge of a bubble that's constantly expanding into a higher dimension. It's very... Matt, I, I want that tattooed on my... I'm going to say my forehead. <laughs> yeah, but you're going to be pretty disappointed if, if this whole multiverse ends up being a whole load of nonsense. Yeah, but I just listened to it. That is amazing, isn't it? I mean, that is poetry. I know I get excited about these things, Matt, but I can't help it, all right? Just to burst your bubble a little bit. Oh, for... Quite literally. There, there have been a on. couple of papers quite recently. 2014, there was a paper by Coley and Haslam that called into yeah. question this, this whole idea. And they, they concluded that the theory of eternal inflation based on random quantum fluctuations would not be a viable theory and that resulting existence of a multiverse is still very much an open question that will require much deeper investigation. So, no shit, Sherlock. Yeah, and also a guy called uh, Paul Davis who wrote a uh, piece in the New York Times, A Brief History of the Multiverse. He said, extreme multiverse explanations are therefore reminiscent of theological discussions, indeed invoking an infinity of unseen universes to explain the unusual features of the one we do see is just ad hoc as invoking an unseen creator. The multiverse theory may be dressed up in scientific language, but in essence it requires the same leap of faith so basically, we've just been wasting mm. the listeners' time with our ridiculous theory of the multiverse. But I dis yeah, I don't completely agree. No, with I that don't. From, I don't. From Paul Davis. I, no, I don't agree with that because anything that's born out of mathematics and and has a reason why it might exist and the th right. and the theory might exist is not the same as evoking a creator that has no hypothetical reason for being. 
It's no, no it's it, you know at least this stuff is based. It's a bit like string theory itself. String theory. Well, is, science is chipping away at the answers yeah. that they don't know. Unlike faith. Yeah, I mean, string theory is often called a, a non-science because there's no prediction, so you can't really test it. So it does feel like a leap of faith. But how long's a piece of string, Matt? Uh, there is a length of rope, isn't there? Like in the fire brigade, you can have a <laughs> oh, length is there? of yeah, yeah. In the fire yeah? brigade, ro- oh. rope is, has a specific length, so maybe string does as well. Um, oh. I've got, I've got just to add to the to the complexity of this subject. Brian Greene, who is one of my favourite science ah, yes. authors, he wrote about the nine types of multiverse. Here we go. So you've got your quilted. Is that three ply? Quilts are made of like those hexagons and in the old oh, old yeah. fashioned quilts. Basically, if it, if the universe is infinite, you'll have repeating universes throughout this infinite universe because there's only so many combinations you can have. Got it. Inflationary uh, multiverse, so that's what we were just talking about. You have your brain multiverse, where these universes ex- exist on brains, membranes, um, uh, so and they're all stacked up on one another. You have okay. cyclic multiverses. Uh, you have landscape multiverses. You have quantum multiverses, i.e. every time a quantum event happens, you split off into a new universe right. you have the holographic multiverse and oh i like that yeah, one and uh so that's the theory that the surface area of a space can encode the contents of the volume of a region <laughs> what well, well say that again so the surface area of a space can encode the contents of the volume you know when you look at a holograph that's exa- exactly what's happening you've got a, a two-dimensional plate of glass for example with a holograph on it but it's encoded the entire volume of something hasn't it because you can move around it and see the thing okay so the holographic holographic principle at the moment is is something that's blowing scientists mind simulated universes so there might be lots and lots of universes being simulated on a massive computer somewhere <laughs> and is someone controlling me Matt? yeah and then of course you have the ultimate multiverse that's every mathematical possible universe under different laws of physics. <laughs> so God damn. you have to think about all those things. Well, Matt, bef- can I just ask you one thing? Mm-hmm. In your, if you were a betting man, mm-hmm. what type of universe would you say is, is the correct one? What, what, what is your money going? What, with, with multiverses? With all of those nine types. What are you picking? I'm going to go with a single idiosyncratic universe. Wait, was that even on there? Uh, well, yeah, I'm not. I'm just not going with the multiverse. Oh, at the moment, I'm not going with it. Oh. I, I think I'm going. I'm super open to the idea of a multiverse, and, and imagine how exciting it would be if that little blue patch in the CMB turned out to be a collision with another oh another God. universe. Oh, my God. Matt, for now, I'm going to go with simulated because, you know, I'm the yin to your yang. Yeah, you and Elon Musk. Drink. Can I just say, Matt, if someone is controlling me, Mm -hmm. can they just stop (laughs) so much, please? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Just kidding. Um, Okay, that's not going in. What's up next? We've got... (laughs) (laughs) So, so silly. Um, Matt, we have uh, an interview coming up, mm. and 
we loved this one, didn't we? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we we took it, it would it was quite hard to get him on because it was almost he's he's actually a very um modest chap and it, it was it was quite hard. he just didn't think that there was of any interest but he was wrong. He thought, "Why do you want to talk to me? What do you want to talk to me about?" And then we uh we talked to him and I think our listeners will know exactly why we wanted to talk to Matt. Yeah. Um Shall we roll the tape? Yeah, let's let's have a listen to Matt Taylor of Esau. Here we go. Ecoute. The Interplanetary Podcast, putting the ace back into space. We're joined by Matt Taylor. Uh, whereabouts are you, Matt? Whereabouts in the world are you? I'm in my office. <laughs> no, I'm... Uh... I'm in uh, Aztec, uh, the European Space Agency's uh, Research and Technology Centre here in Nordwijk in the Netherlands. So although you have an English accent, we, we are all very, very far away from one another right now. I guess so. It's That's pretty true. true. Well, a- astronomically relatively close, but uh, yeah, I guess. Yeah, we're, we're, we're nearer than Rosetta, for sure. Yes, certainly. <laughs> well, we were lucky enough to visit your uh, the place you're in right now. Uh, when was it, Matt? Last year? Yeah, yeah, last year. Well, oh, no, incredible. Wasn't last year? No, it was the. It was the. It wasn't the last time Estec Open Day. It was the Estec Open Day before. Oh, okay. So, so oh. yeah, the the last one. Julio kept sending me pictures and and saying, "Oh, look, you're you're missing out." So yeah, you pretty... missed this one. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I don't. I suppose you missed my talk then. We did. We <laughs> did. We, we, annoyingly, we did miss your talk because we were. Uh, I I can't remember. I can't. Remember which of the astronauts we were interviewing at the time, but we had yeah. to. We, we, yeah, we, yeah, it's it, it's a hectic day that one, but yeah. well, in a way, it's good because you missed missed uh, seeing my talk uh, uh, with me in my stormtrooper outfit. It's oh. quite sweaty. <laughs> it's quite sweaty. Damn it. I have to say. Yeah, we did. I did. I did see plenty of tweets with you walking around with you, you, you but I never actually saw you on the day. Yeah, annoyingly. Well, the Otherwise, we'd have grabbed you. We'd have grabbed you. It's quite nice to to wear that on the day because. Uh, Nobody knows it's me. Uh, I mean, nobody knows who I am now anyway, but around Rosetta time when I did wear it, uh, it was quite a nice way of uh, becoming incognito. Uh, and then freaking people out by saying, oh, uh, you know, there's a guy, um, uh, Guido, he runs the Swiss Space Museum, and I knew he was coming to one of the open days, and we were standing there with the Dutch garrison dressed as stormtroopers and various other characters, and he came up and asked if we could have a photograph, etc. And I was standing there, and I turned around to him, you know, in my stormtrooper outfit, and said, "Hi, Guido. Was it a long trip from Switzerland?" And he freaked out, going, oh "My God, <laughs> the stormtroopers know everything." Uh, yeah, so I had to come clean and say, "Oh, it's Matt, by the way." But anyway, <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a nice way of be, uh, being incognito. When we're trying to think of guests for the uh, podcast, we're thinking of, uh, in particular, kind of, I guess, British legends of space, which of which there, of course, aren't that many. We, we don't have really a, a space program as such. And uh, so your name, your obviously, your name keeps coming up for various reasons. Can you can you take us right from the beginning of how you got into, um, yeah, well, how you got into space and where where it all began for you? Uh, yeah. Okay. Well, let's go as a, as a kid. Uh, I obviously, I like Lego. I like Star Wars. We've, we've mentioned that, but I think the, the biggest influence of my parents and certainly my father, who was, uh, uh, a bricklayer and basically didn't want me to be a bricklayer. <laughs> so he was, uh, how can I put it? He was, uh, strongly encouraging me to stay in school and get an education, etc., and was 
always, you know, one of the things I, I remember as a kid, we used to go over to my uncle Johnny's house and my dad and uh, John used to talk, you know, it's the classic old school uh, men sitting there talking about stuff. And they'd also, yeah. they'd always go on about, or Johnny would always go on about how physics is an important subject and it was the, the science of the world around us. And, and my dad got into that and was kind of pushing that onto me. And so I wouldn't say I was super excited about physics, but at least I had um, something to go, oh, I think I'll look at physics. So ultimately through high school, I was doing sciences and maths and then did A-levels in uh, maths and physics and did a degree in physics at Liverpool University, which is a, a fantastic experience. And I've been lucky enough because of Rosetta, et cetera, to go back and do talks up there. It's a really, you know, come, all, all the memories come flooding back after two decades. And during that time period, I mean, right, I, I, I've jumped quite quickly here from, you know, what, why I went into physics, et cetera. <laughs> I was toying with the idea during my undergrad uh, years of becoming a professional scientist but I didn't know which path I wanted to go down. Uh, Liverpool was a very strong particle physics university, but I did one course in astronomy, and that kind of went made me go, oh, I wouldn't mind having a look at this. So I applied to do a couple of PhDs and got a PhD position at Imperial College to do plasma physics. So I'm not an astronomer per se. I don't, you know, I've only recently got an, a, a telescope, but I was taken by this this aspect of examining what space is what it feels like if you want so looking at uh what plasma is the this ubiquitous phenomenon that uh interlaces the universe so i did a phd in space plasma physics it coincided with the launch of a, a wonderful mission called cluster um which was launched in 2000 so i finished my thesis around the time of when that was launched and i immediately got a postdoctoral position working on one of the instruments on a uh, cluster, uh, an instrument that uh, collects electrons um, in, in a plasma. So this this mission is a full spacecraft mission. It's still flying now, flying around the Earth, examining the interplay between this, the outer atmosphere of the sun, the solar wind, and the Earth's magnetic field. So really looking at the physics behind the, the aurora. And I was working on one of the instruments there at the forefront of the activity, Ended up talking to lots of people, interacting with all the other scientists in the community. Uh, the, you, as, as, a, as a PhD, you know, as a, as a PhD scientist, you do these postdoctoral positions, which increases your training as a scientist. So I did one post uh, working on cluster at Mullard Space Science Laboratory, uh, part of University College London down in Surrey. Then got a position in Los Alamos National Laboratory, still working on cluster, but diversifying to other uh, spacecraft as well, looking at energetic particles in the magnetosphere, this, this, this bubble that's formed in the solar wind by the Earth's magnetic field. And then came back to the UK, back to Europe, uh, to work again in Mullard Space Science Laboratory, but this time working on a Chinese collaboration with ESA uh, called Double Star, which was using spare instruments from the cluster mission, but putting them on Chinese spacecraft. And I was one of the uh, instrument operators on those spacecraft and then applied to uh, a job at the European Space Agency. In, in those five years of being a postdoc, I'd found the, my most uh, how can I say it? The thing that drove me the most is working in teams and working um, to, to support science, and that is really what the role of a project scientist is. So I applied for a, the job of a deputy project scientist of Cluster on uh, uh, yeah in 2005. I got the position, and since then I've been working at ESA. So I'm going to have a drink and a breath now because I'm kind of <laughs> poor dumped. There you go. That's, what, 15-odd years or something. Wow. Yeah, That. I mean, that that is some journey. So... With your yeah, when you're a team, when you're a project leader in that in that sense, where we're up to now, 
is is that really technical or is it less technical and more personality driven um the role of project scientist you're really a facilitator your, your, your role is to make sure people can do science on the mission that you're involved in. So it's less, I mean, you have to have a technical understanding of, of the mission. And again, this depends on what, you know, what part or what time you are on the mission. So a project scientist during the building of, uh, of the mission is very focused on ensuring that the science requirements are met by the technical implement- implementation by the instrument builders and the platform builders, etc. So it depends what time of the mission you're in. I've only worked on the operational stage where your fundamental role is being the interface between the community and the European Space Agency. So really making sure that the engineers can do what the science community want with the uh, with the spacecraft and with their, their instruments that they're flying on the, on the spacecraft. So it's really, for want of a better phrase, uh, people management. So I really am in in there to make, to massage egos where they <laughs> exist. And uh, I think that thinking of Rosetta, the best description, it's not trying to make sure everyone's happy. It's trying to make sure everyone is equally unhappy. That's <laughs> the best uh, way I can describe this. And of course, also, you, you're there to be the voice of the mission from the, from the agency perspective and to, you know, demonstrate excitement and try and drive excitement from the from uh the, for, for the public and the inter- both you know the, the lay person and the interested uh, scientific public actually matt you mentioned china earlier um just on a tangent obviously there's some exciting things happening on the moon as we speak um what's your view on uh their stamp of power doing this well, my experience, and, and as I say, I worked with uh, with our Chinese colleagues on the on this double star mission. It's in fact the first collaboration uh, between ESA and China, and it worked very, very well. Um, still have great colleagues and and, and friends uh, in China from the from the basis of that mission. They can do stuff very well, so good. Uh, you know, the more people involved in this, I've got this. You know, I always go back to the kind of Gene Roddenberry view that we should all be working together uh, because otherwise Absolutely. we're not going to get out of the quagmire that we're in. So it's all good to have people working on this and have different nations accelerating because there's, you know, there's a little bit of a race as well. So, you know, one person, I, I know, for example, I was supposed to be having a dry January, but I failed completely. It would have been better <laughs> maybe if a few of my colleagues were also having a dry January because peer pressure works there and it kind of drives you to, <laughs> to, to, to do things, same as a training partner. So having other agencies doing things right kind of pushes things along. I mean, you know, you just have to look back at the Apollo program and some of the more political reasons uh, the US went to the moon. You know, it was a race, and that drives things. It drives uh, technology development and and all kinds of things. So, yeah, I I think it's good. And it's great to see cotton being grown on on the moon. Yeah, that's incredible. The the shoot's coming out now. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah, so I mean, that's a really good point. You you kind of touched on it there, that that whole area of – what is going to drive space? Is it going to be is it going to be competition, or is it going to be collaboration, or a, a really brilliant hybrid of the two? What What do you reckon? Well, I think it, it's both. I mean, we can't do these things without collaboration, and I won't get too political, in particular with uh, the UK scenario and situation at the moment. But I work for the European Space Agency, and it works because we do a lot of collaboration. Without it, we couldn't do. We couldn't do. We couldn't have done Rosetta. You just look at the team that I was referring to is across Europe and across the world. So, 
you have close collaboration uh, on projects together, but there's a little bit of competition sometimes that, that, that will push you forward in that way. But mo- I would say most of the time now we're talking about um, strong collaboration. You know, just look at Bepi Colombo recently uh, being launched. That's a, that's a great mission and a great demonstration of uh, interagency collaboration. Yeah, it's one of my favorite missions. Brilliant. What would you say, Matt, is the advice that you could give to any of our listeners who, like you, when you were younger, ha- have this have this fascination about space, but they're not really quite sure how to get into a certain uh, you know sector? What would be your advice on on trying to get into the industry? Well, I have to say, I wouldn't say that I was. You know, I didn't know that I. If I look back. Uh, 20 years ago, well, probably 25 years ago, because I'm getting on, maybe even 30 years ago, I would not have expected me to be where I am now. Um, My plan was always, let's see what, if I get through this next step, let's have a take stock of where I am and move on. So that I guess you could see that. That was like, right, let's do science at high school, go into A-level, let's go to university, do physics. Uh, physics will get me to do some, uh, be a professional scientist. What what field do I want to go into? I think my main... um, advice that i give all the time is um don't sweat if you if you're not inspired because this is and i'm, I'm a, the, the father of uh, two teenagers and there's a lot of pressure on kids so i'll target this on on teenagers and, and, and people in school there's a lot of pressure on you to know what you have to do and what you're going to do in 20 years time what career you're going to take that's a bit too much pressure i think i think you know just try and Look at shorter-term goals, trying to do those achievements that set you in good stead in the end. So don't worry too much if you don't know what you're going to do. Uh, just try and keep achieving. And if you fail, you know, dust yourself off and and, and, and try again. Uh, of course, if you try 15 times and uh, you're really failing all the time, that might be an indication that you might not be uh, the best set for that. So it's like me trying to be a long-distance runner or something. I know that I can't be because I'm not built for it. But sure. the key thing being, don't let failure put you off it, it, it it's uh, a great teacher there's there's probably a yoda quote in there somewhere <laughs> yeah uh, that, 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 that's that's my that's my suggestion you, you know i couldn't give you a magic path as to how to get into these uh into into space uh related activities but it's more about the short-term stuff look at your short-term goals try and achieve them don't be uh, don't be scared of failure just try um and uh just keep smiling that's the main thing i like it we've got to your career at this point but i guess that the thing that most people know you for is uh rosetta what was that like to start on and to be part of and what was it like because you 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 became pretty famous and infamous were you kind of prepared for that and and how did that how did that all feel and come about um uh, i wasn't i don't think anyone was prepared for how big rosetta actually got in the end uh, we knew it was going to be big, but not that big. So I was uh, given the opportunity to join the mission quite late in uh, its uh, its its life. And I knew it was going to be a, a tough task um, because the team, uh, the, the science working team, that's the group of uh, principal investigators, the, the, the lead scientists on each instrument, plus a couple of interdisciplinary scientists. That's my main interface to the community. They're the ones that kind of, they're the ones that run, well, not kind of, they're the ones that were doing the operating of their instruments on the spacecraft. So you really, as a project scientist, have to have a good working relationship with that team. And I came on board and had to rapidly develop an interaction with them and that goes back to the you know making sure everyone's 
equally unhappy. Uh, <laughs> so, it, I mean, and it was a, a, a mission going to the unknown. Um, there was so much going on at the same time. That was the, that's the thing with Rosetta. And now we go, when I look back in hindsight and we, we kind of look at what we could have done here and what we could have done there, it's very difficult to separate the hindsight of, of situations that there were times where you go back and we were working on very limited information in terms of how we could go about certain problems uh, because we'd gone to something that we didn't know what it looked like. Uh, we didn't really know what its density was and this kind of thing. So it really was, um, I, I probably overuse this term, a roller coaster ride and was strikingly more intense than any of us could have uh, envisaged. In I particular, bet. given the, the the public interest and the fact that, you know, yeah, the only reason I'm talking to you now is because of Rosetta. I was working for years on, I spent most of my career before Rosetta working on this, uh, the, the cluster mission I referred to before. Um, it's a fantastic mission. It's still, you know, I wouldn't say my, well, let's say it, it's a, fa you know, I, I, I hold it dear to my heart because my career has been based on that. I started with it. Um, but it's it didn't have the ingredients of excitement maybe that uh, that Rosetta had. And also my mum didn't really understand, still doesn't understand to some extent what uh, space plasma physics is, but she definitely knew what Rosetta was and, and what it was doing. So at least it was easier for me to explain to my mother what I was doing uh, <laughs> yeah, sure. 25 hours a day. So every 12th of November, are you raising a, a glass of something nice? Um, I have to say my... Looking back, it's pretty difficult. There are certain periods of time which was so stressful. I don't think I can re I don't recollect the landing week very well at all. I still sure. whether there's some kind of psychological blackout or something. I don't really remember certain aspects of of what was going on. You know, of course, there's the colleagues here, Fred Janssen, who was a mission manager at the time, down the corridor, and uh, Joe Zender, who now works on us. So Fred, uh, he's the mission manager now of the Gaia um, mission. Uh, Joe Zender is the deputy project scientist of the Bepi Colombo mission. You see, he's got a fantastic beard now. Uh, but at the time, <laughs> during uh, November 2014, he was charged with one of the, he was one of the main interfaces with the, the lander team, the Philae lander team. So every now and again, we have a little chat about uh, reminiscing on certain things and it, it helps to have other people around to remember what the actual timeline was but it, it yeah that, I would be, of, uh, be able to recollect better the event of the end of mission which to me really everything just came out I, I kind of nearly had a breakdown on <laughs> on uh, the, the sky at night with Chris Lintop but it really was up to that point there'd been certain uh, personal things going on in 2016 as well in 2015 because my father had terminal cancer and passed away in 16 and all of that came and any stress and any interaction my you know I missed growing my kids growing up uh, mm. and, and 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 my wife had put up with a lot as well and that all kind of came out at the end of mission so it really uh, kind of exploded in my mind I had a bit of a uh, a reset then but yeah looking back there yeah, it's but it was a phenomenal ride it's provided me certainly with uh some fantastic opportunities to meet personalities and and people from completely different backgrounds uh to me um, and 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 that was all because of rosetta so getting to meet people from tv getting to meet musicians etc was all because of rosetta because of the public the humanity's fascination with this mission and what we were doing favorite musician you've met well, I have to say, well, the, well I, I wouldn't want to name specific, <laughs> but um, sure. I think the main one for me, which not, maybe not everyone uh, is familiar with, the first, and this maybe is touching on uh, Space Rocks and, and where the 
the origins of some of the interactions and where that was born. During the landing event, uh, a fantastic gentleman called uh, Alex Milas, Alexander Milas, who was the uh, editor of Metal Hammer magazine at the time, was trying to contact me to to talk to me about you know my career, kind of the questions you've been asking me, and, and about Rosetta, mainly because of. Is that you or me or? Uh, it's not no, me. It's, no. Sorry, it's my mother. <laughs> oh, I'll just take her on. Yeah, so, yeah. Sorry, Does... mum. <laughs> oh, no. I'll start again. I feel really bad. <laughs> no, it's okay. She she does that every now and again. She phones me up during the day and says, "Are you at work?" I'm like, "It's like, are you are you part of Visa checking that I'm at work?" So anyway, I, I digress. Um, right. Uh, November 2014, Alexander Milas, the, the editor of uh, Metal Hammer magazine at the time, was trying to get an interview with me based on the work that I was doing with Rosetta, but also because of what I look like, basically. I've got tattoos. Uh, it's this whole thing of demonstrating that people people's perceptions of scientists in uh, are perhaps a bit skewed. So the fact that somebody with tattoos could be a scientist is uh, is something that he was interested in, you know, this... this yeah. Uh, this picture. So I worked out to try and have an interview or to, or to talk with him. And it happened to be that we met uh, backstage at a Morbid Angel concert in Islington in London. And there was a very bizarre interaction where he was asking me questions backstage whilst one of the support acts, I think it was Unfathomable Ruination, were taking their kit off stage. So it'd be... <laughs> Him asking me what my favorite, you know, name a favorite track or whatever. I think I was talking about Napalm Death at the time. So the guys are going, okay, <laughs> there's, there's this weird looking guy backstage. That's fine. And then the next time they come past, you know, carrying the drum riser and a few other bits, we're talking about the evolution of the solar system. And then one of the guys looked around, <laughs> one of the roadies went, oh, you're him. And then so we had this weird interaction backstage with the, this other band. But what I'm getting to is, in, um, so we had that interaction with Alex. But he got me to meet uh, Dave Vincent from Morbid Angel, who, you know, that was the first uh, death metal band that I got into, the first de death metal band that I went to see. So that was an interesting one. And, uh, and inevitably, well, and, and it turns out that off the back of that, I had some interactions with Dave Vincent and then ended up staying at his house <laughs> uh, in Texas because I'd gone to the Lunar and Planetary uh, Conference and it was the week. Uh, it was around the time of South by Southwest uh, festival, and and Dave was running a a little event there. So I went to that to do some outreach stuff, and then went to this science convention. It was one of these really weird, whistle tops. Uh, you know, this weird uh, experience that happened all again because of Rosetta. And then jumping back to Alexander, he then was kept in contact because we we did a couple of things with Metal Hammer and various things. And uh, he said, oh, I'd like to invite you to this um, Golden Gods Award. And I said, well, I'm really busy at the moment. Things are going on with Rosetta, et cetera. So I'll see if I can fit in the schedule. I kind of ring-fenced it, but then a lot of stuff was going on around that time. And I said, look, I'm not going to be able to make it because there's just so much travel going on. I was trying to reduce my travel for personal reasons. And he said, look, I really want you to come because we're going to give you an award um, we're going to give you this award, the, the, the spirit of metal kind of thing. Um, the, 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 it's somebody that's not classically into, uh, he's not a musician or whatever, but, uh, kind of display some kind of metal spirit. So that's, that, that was what he, so he's <laughs> nice. on this. And then he said, and also there's a guy from your old university that wants to present this to you. And that was how I made this connection with Brian May. So I actually then go to this bloody award ceremony, see all of these bands that I used to be, you know, fascinated with. I'm having a backstage conversation with Mike from Suicidal Tendencies and then get a phone call 
from uh, New Zealand uh, to do a radio interview whilst I'm waiting to go on stage with Brian May, who's going to do this presentation to me and then subsequently I have to present to him. So, yeah, that's name dropping. I think one of the biggest ones is with Brian May because we've continued talking and interacting and hopefully we'll be doing some more work with uh, the Rosetta images. So, as you asked, there there are a couple of names dropped, Dave Vincent and Mike, uh, I think it's Mike Muir, isn't it, from uh, Suicidal and then Brian May. Excellent. That's amazing. Well, we're going to keep we're keep we're keeping plugging away. We we will get Brian May on the show one day. No, well, I was I was just going to say so that Brian May presumably is doing those stereo images of Rosetta. Is that right? Are you working with yes. him on, on something like that? Yeah. Yeah. So hopefully that will happen. Um, but you know, we've been talking about it for ages. So I'm, whether it will happen, I don't know. But it's just one of these things that's been there. Every time I see him, we talk about it. And in particular, off the back of. Uh, New Horizons, I've been uh, chatting with him a bit. And off the back of this Moon book in particular, I went to the opening again, lucky me, uh, went to the Science Museum and uh, and uh, got to see him do the presentation there. And we had a brief chat there saying, that, you know, I keep basically I keep on hassling him saying, you know, it's all very well you going swanning off and doing all this New Horizon stuff with Alan Stern. But what about Europe? Come back here and uh, <laughs> do some stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So, so looking into 2019, uh, Matt, what would you say you're most excited about? You mentioned New Horizons and we mentioned the moon. Is there any anything coming up later this year that you're like, oh, can't wait for that? Um, from oh, from the ESA perspective, we have the Chaos yeah. launch at the end of uh, uh, of this year, which is a big year. So, you know, I'm I'm looking forward to that for for various reasons. One of them because my my great colleague uh, Kate Isaac, who I went and had coffee with, we always have a nice, uh, you know. We, She's just down the corridor. We're chatting just not about st- uh, science stuff, but about general, poly- you know, people and whatever. But, you know, we're, sure. she's just a very nice uh, uh, character and, and, and uh, colleague. And it's good to see colleagues get to that stage where yeah, they've been working on this mission and it's going to launch. And it, I, I find I find that fascinating when I see my – well, again, so I was mentioning Joe Zender before who works on Bepi Colombo and Johannes Benkoff, the project scientist of uh, Bepi Colombo, seeing those colleagues go through the the mill of the, when the industry phase is on and then the launch and the, and the relief. So Kate's got that coming up. So she'll get to enjoy the launch and seeing the uh, the fruits of her labor then go up and then the science starts turning up. For me, though, personally, I have to say it's a bit selfish. Maybe I'm interested to see on the in the the science director of ESA. We made a call last year for ideas for quite what we call a fast mission. So this is a mission budget of around 150 million, and we will select a mission in summer this year. So I'm hoping that one of those missions will get selected and I'll be given the nod to work on it. So that's that's what I'm looking forward to personally. So as well as Kiosk, oh, nice. it's, it's, the, it's, the, uh, it's, you know, the, the next step because Rosetta's finished uh, for a, well, it's about two and a half years now. I'll, I'm phasing out gradually working on it and having something new like that would be, uh, it, it is a great interest to me. So we'll see what happens. Is your, is your daily job still revolving around Rosetta? still or, or, or what what are the other kind of projects you're working on currently oh okay uh this might sound really boring but yeah ma- the majority of my time is still spent being the rosetta project scientist so organizing meetings doing reports and trying to you know uh, stimulate activity there i'm now also working uh with um colleagues here within the science directorate in in the coordination area they are the people behind the, the interface with the different agencies and identify 
where perhaps in the future we could do collaboration. So I'm working with them specifically looking at some of the more plasma physics um, missions that could be coming up uh, from, from NASA and also examining how there's a, a new, uh, well, there's, it's been running. There's a, there's a program called Space Situational Awareness um, in ESA where they have different programs to do with debris clearance and, and asteroid deflection and also space weather. So I'm interfacing with that part of ESA to see where and how potentially science could get involved in the future. So interagency, but also intra-agency in, in, inside the agency. Mm. I'm doing that role, which is more political, I guess. And more recently, I've been dabbling, as it were, with... Um, my colleagues in uh, human and robotic exploration, so the people that do the ISS, the International Space Station, and, and, and ExoMars and such, uh, looking at potential opportunities that could be afforded by the uh, the Lunar Gateway. So this um, Na NASA-led activity of uh, sticking something around the moon um, in, in the 20s. So mm -hmm. looking at potential payloads that we could put on there. So that's something that I'm also working on as well as dabbling with, uh, well, I'll use the word dabbling a little bit here with my colleagues in earth observation, because there's a fantastic mission called swarm, uh, which is a low altitude mission that looks at the earth's magnetic field. And we were connecting that years ago and have been ever, ever since it was launched uh, a good few years ago now with cluster looking at how the, the earth's magnetic field evolves, uh, out into this, uh, uh, beyond the, you know when it gets further away from the earth but also how the the core magnetic field works and just doing some work with them uh as well so there's a few i've just basically been putting my fingers out waiting because at the moment as i say i'm waiting for this f-class mission i was involved in some of the proto studies in that but i'm just kind of dabbling because i was you know rosetta happened and i thought well, I'll try and see what else is going on in the agency. <laughs> well, it sounds, it's, I mean, when you said it, it was going to sound boring, it sounds like it's extreme. It sounds like absolutely amazingly exciting to me. It sounds like, in the end, though, it all, say, it's all yeah, about writing what? reports and answering emails. So, yeah, I mean, this is the thing. I, I had this during Rosetta when there'd be people going, oh, I'd really like to shadow you for a day. I think all you do is see me shouting at a monitor <laughs> and filtering emails. I'm glad at least we share that. Yeah, I mean, this is it. It's a common thing. Everyone knows Word. Everyone knows email programs, and that's it. It's it's the same wherever you are. It's just what you're working on. So that was actually a, a thing that I came to realize and, and was trying to promote it to colleagues that were working on Rosetta to go out and do talks because we would get very frustrated. Some of the interactions personally and professionally became very um, difficult because of the stress levels of the mission. But when you then go out and do a talk to a school or to a bunch of interested, you know, an amateur astronomy uh, group, and they'd just be wowed by what you're doing. And you're coming out with these words going, oh, hang on a minute, I, I work on this mission. It does sound quite nice, and I shouldn't moan that much about my my day-to-day -day work. So, yeah. What is happening with Space Rocks? What's the next big kind of event? Uh, well, that's that's TBD, actually, at the moment, and, and there's some of the stuff I wouldn't like to reveal. I should probably, because I mentioned the evolution, but that, that connection, I mentioned uh, Alexander Milas, that's where Space Rocks was partly born, was that interaction with Alexander that um, I had. And then I put him in contact with uh, with Mark McCochran here, the Senior Science Advisor of ESA uh, uh, Science and Exploration. And from that grew this... Um, this partnership with a, a company that Alex formed, and that's where Space Rocks came from, saying we 
have identified a way to try and it, it's a it's a, a mechanism of showing that the crossover between science um, and culture and music and art etc again because of Rosetta because of some of the opportunities we were afforded we've spent about five well for the last five years we've been going to science fiction conventions because of that broadened interest a heightened interest because of Rosetta and that's kind of the, the kind of that's a little bit space rocks related we Alex had identified along with Mark and myself, that that's something we should try and um, keep going, keep the momentum going. And that's where Space Rocks is at the moment. So stay tuned because there are things in the pipeline, but I don't want to put too many spoilers mm. out. And I'd rather leave it to, to Alex and, and Mark, uh, maybe, if, you, if you're going to chat with them, maybe. This is the thing. Well, head over to spacerocksofficial.com for all the latest uh, details on that. Amazing. Um, well, Matt, one thing we can't let you go without doing is we ask every guest if they can give us their favourite fact, their favourite space fact. Do you have anything buzzing around that you can uh, blow our minds with? Oh, God. Right. What have we got? Space probably, fact? probably should have asked you this in advance, so apologies. Well, I'll, I'll just have to, I'd have to default to my facts that I spit out when I'm doing my kind of almost automatic Rosetta presentations. <laughs> um, sure. I think this was it. I mean, yeah, this was the big one. And one of the challenges we always had and one of the challenges with doing anything to do with orbiting around small bodies like this, in particular comets, is the fact that the comet, although it looks very rocky and dense, it wasn't very dense at all. It could float in water. Its density was half that of, uh, of ice. So, right, it's... Low density, that means it, it's not that, it hasn't got that much mass, so its gravity is quite low. So when you consider that uh, on Earth you can, I think if you jumped four centimetres off the ground, uh, you'd come back. Um, but if you exerted the same uh, escape velocity, if you exerted the same kind of jump on the comet, you'd achieve escape velocity and never come back down again. So I think that was something that Ooh. we always put across when we were, or when we give talks about Rosetta, because you look at it and think, oh, it's just, you know, you can orbit that. It's really difficult. That's why it was so difficult to, to land and to orbit around the thing, because, yeah, it's, so there's not much of it yeah. there. So presumably that's why Philae touched the, touched the comet, then bouncing straight back up again. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, actually, um, the original target for Rosetta was a comet that was much smaller. So, um they had to put a bit of strengthening on the Philae lander because the the object that we were going to was uh, was more massive. So the the gravity was actually stronger on this one. <laughs> uh, so they had to strengthen the shock collar on on on, on Philae. As you say, it bounced a couple of times and and it clipped. I think I think it's the first bounce or there was a clip that it did during its one over kilometer traverse across the lobe, the the, north, the head lobe. That if it hadn't have done that, it possibly could have gone into orbit and maybe have been lost. So you know, fortuitous uh, bouncing. <laughs> Excellent. That is amazing. Um, oh, what 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 a fact that is. I'm, I'm going to have one last question. So, were you excited about the Ultima Thule uh, flyby because of its kind of? Because I thought it looked ridiculously similar to Rosetta, and I did notice you were the first to point out to NASA that. It wasn't the first object like that that they'd found. Yeah, that, well, they yeah that, they made an excited comment saying this is the first time we've seen a bilobed object, and it's not just Rosetta. There, there's a couple of objects uh, alongside 67P Jurimov-Gerasimenko, Rosetta's target comet. There are a couple of other comets that look a bit like that as well. I think the key thing here is, and this, it it was the devil's in the detail. Now, Alan and colleagues had made statements in. Um, 
in a press conference that were completely correct. It's just when you try and compress that into a tweet, it becomes very difficult. I am very familiar with that. Uh, <laughs> so it was just a little uh, slip of a tweet, as it were, and uh, it was corrected subsequently because it is a fascinating object and it's great to make that connection. This 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 Kuiper Belt object is a comet before it becomes a comet. So making that connection, saying you've got this primordial comet, this primordial object, you're saying that by low nature, you know, the, the fact that it's got these two bits stuck together, it's probably that's how it is out in the Kuiper belt. Now, Rosetta and other, uh, sorry, uh, uh, Churumov-Gurisomenko and other comets, when they're in the inner solar system, potentially the fact that they've got a similar looking shape doesn't necessarily mean that they were formed that way out in the Kuiper belt. They could have split up and then come back down, come back together again in their subsequent orbit. So that's the thing here. That's the difference here. That The fact that that's out there in the Kuiper belt, that's how it started. You know, it hasn't had any processing from the sun, etc. So that's why I think they changed it to be a primordial uh, bilobed object. But nonetheless, it's fantastic that we have something out there uh, doing these observations. And I remember having this interaction with Alan Stern, who was um, a PI. He had the Alice instrument on Rosetta. So we had a close collaboration and close interaction uh, during the mission. He was he made this statement that, you know, we we had to wait for one of these objects to to come in to, to go and investigate, where he was going gung-ho and just flying out to go and meet these things with uh, New Horizons. So, yeah, it's all good. We're all, <laughs> we're all happy that, uh, that, that these missions are going on and inspiring. Yeah, it's amazing that small bit of evidence could be, you know, it, all, all these missions that just get that little bit more evidence and widen our human knowledge it's incredible isn't it really yeah it's, I, it fascinates me again coming back from you know i had a plasma physics background so i never really looked at images and, and certain some of the instruments that we had uh, had on rosetta i wasn't fully familiar with but now i fully appreciate the science that you can do with those instruments and it, yeah it's just fascinating piecing these pieces of evidence together saying you know for me with rosetta the fact that we we discovered this molecular oxygen and it surprised everyone, and then the implications of that in terms of how that means the comet would have been formed so many billion years ago, and what the implications are for the temperature of the cloud dust and gas before the sun was formed. Mm. So there, you just go, oh, we detected this, so what? Or you look at the object and say, well, it looks like this. There are implications just by observing the the, 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 the spatial structure of the thing, what it smells like, etc., that are quite have a massive impact. And so doing these studies, it doesn't just talk about how our solar system has evolved. So the stuff that we do with uh, so New Horizons and also and, uh, Rosetta and other small bodies missions, they have implications outside of our own solar system. So there's a lot of work being spun off of the Rosetta results connecting to other stellar systems, looking at the gas clouds and the, the astrochemistry that we see around them based on or, or using some of the Rosetta results saying well we saw this in Rosetta can we see that in this gas cloud on that target here and we do see it so there are it's more than just our solar system and, and how we came about on the earth it's how solar systems evolve in general around the uh, the galaxy and the universe yeah it's like being a detective isn't it I mean the last uh, the the, the the one thing that I haven't heard about recently is was was the was this Rosetta results was almost the nail in the coffin with, in terms of Earth getting its water from comets? Is that, is um, that does that still hold, or is that or, or is that one of those things yeah, that's kind of yeah, gone away? Yeah, I, I think 
that we can make the statement that it's highly unlikely that well it, it ad- right let me try and phrase this correctly um <laughs> not in a tweet uh, the, the, the comets weren't a major delivery mechanism for water i think that's the best way to say it however um there are other bits bits of, there are other things on, that we found on the comet other other gases and, and such that we, when we do the comparison with the Earth's atmosphere, we can see that there's actually a significant amount that, that when you look at the, the ratios, etc. So comets might not have delivered water, but they could have been significant in the delivery of other um, building blocks, if you want, or ingredients uh, to, to the Earth, uh, its atmosphere, etc. Uh, but I would say, yeah, that that result kind of indicated that it, it went along with some other previous results. It's just some of the Herschel results uh, were showing uh, a difference. Uh, that the Herschel spacecraft was looking at this deuterium to hydrogen ratio in in, in other comets and and found some 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 different you know yeah. things that were not lying on the same path. But then Rosetta, our in situ investigation, showed that it was back to what people had been thinking anyway that comets were. Delivered maybe a bit of the water is more to do with asteroids and potentially uh, the Earth itself might have retained stuff, uh, substance, uh, retained water uh, in the subsurface. But the, they have other ingredients uh, that could have, that would have been delivered by these comets that, that may have led to us. Yeah, so they're pretty important. That's oh, mind blowing. Can I ask? Can I ask you two favors? If your F F class mission does come through. Uh, let us know, and so we can chat to you about that. But also, oh, indeed, yeah. If, yeah. If if your colleague Kate wants to talk about chaos, then we'd love to have her on. Yes, okay, I will do that. I'm writing it down now, so I'll I'll make that suggestion because uh, I know she's going to be, or she is already being inundated with uh, requests. But I would certainly put the uh, a good word into. Uh, oh yes, that's direction. it. You can put us to the top of the pile. I'm sure. Yes, okay. I'll do my best. <laughs> awesome. Thanks so much for doing this. We know you're a busy man, so uh, we appreciate it. Well, I'm I'm just glad we managed to do it because it's been – I don't know why it's that tough. It's just, it was one of those things where every time I set a time, something came up. So, yeah, um, yeah. I'm glad. That's why we I just said let's go for it. Yeah, no, absolutely. Awesome. Well, if you're in, oh, Lon- if, if you're in London, uh, let us know. And uh, if you fancy a pint, we should all go for a pint because it sounds like that would be fun. Or we'll go to a gig. We'll go to a gig. Oh, yeah, indeed. Let, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm trying to work something out with uh, Alexander, so maybe we could uh, we could all hang out. That'd be quite cool. The Interplanetary Podcast is alive. Well, thank you very much, Matt Taylor. Uh, we thought you were brilliant, and we'd love to have you back on soon. As soon as his new mission comes up, we'll get him on. Let's absolutely do that, Jamie. Yeah. Should people like and subscribe? Oh. God, yeah. Should people nip over to Patreon? I think they should nip over to Patreon. See if you want to, you know, you probably just want to see if you want to join an elite crew of legends who make this show happen. We've had some fantastic new patrons join us this month. Welcome. Welcome. I'd like to wish everyone a a lovely weekend. And me. Uh, We haven't got a space fact, but never mind. I'll tell you what my space fact is. Yeah, go on. I'm sure we're living in a multi-universe. Oh, yeah, baby universe. Awful space. That's the worst space fact <laughs> I've ever heard. <laughs> I just wanted to annoy sort of that person who complained. I'm sorry. Um, I am going to go now and have a great weekend, everybody. Don't forget to look up and dream the impossible dream. Oh, yeah, baby impossible dream. <laughs> 
Goodbye. Goodbye, Spodcats. <laughs>